If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to kick into it soon. Let me give just a brief apology. I'm I have tried over and over again to see if I can rethink this, and I just, it's going to come off like a college sermon or like a college lecture at points. I'm really sorry. Some of you are excited by that because you're nerds, and some of you are like, why did I even come to church today? I'm really going to work hard to just kind of put as much information out there as possible. My goal is to overwhelm you with the information in the book of Matthew. I want to just kind of like drown you in it. Um, And it's going to feel overwhelming, I think, if it's going the way I'm thinking it's going to go. But just bear with me. Hold on as tight as you can. And then at the end, I'm going to see if I can draw it all back to a point on why this matters. Can can you hold with me for that? All right, that's what we're going to try to do today. College lecture, Matthew chapter 9. Starting in verse 18, it says this. We're just going to go through almost the rest of the chapter, not entirely, but almost. As he was telling them these things, as Jesus was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and they followed him. And just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll I'll be made well. Jesus turned, he saw her. Have courage, daughter. The blind men approached him and Jesus said to them, do you believe I can do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. And when the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus continued going around into all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, for they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. It's really easy for us as we read this to miss what Matthew's doing because Matthew's gospel is quite literally literary artwork. And that's not to deprive it of its historical accuracy. I want to be very clear about that. But it is to say, like all good art, there's a surface level and then there's an in-depth point that you have to do work to get to. So uh, if, if... Ryan Body, who plays bass for us, if Ryan and I were to go to a jazz concert together, we could both enjoy the music, but I'm just telling you, Ryan's going to be able to enjoy that music in a way I could never enjoy or connect with. There's an in-depth part of it that he understands. That's good art. There's a surface level that can be enjoyed, but it's as you wade deeper and deeper into that piece of artwork, it becomes more and more beautiful, more and more sincere. There's something to be said. So I want to see if I can just try to get you to experience that feeling as quickly as possible this morning using uh, what we would literally consider artwork. This is a painting called Anguish uh, by a German painter. called uh, His name is August Friedrich uh, Schenk. Uh, this is a painting that he painted in the late 1800s. Um, and yeah, like if you just look at that, it's probably going to elicit some feelings from you, right? I'm sure some of you even looked at the cover of your bulletin. You're like, why on earth did they pick this for the cover of the bulletin? Like, that is not, like, happy welcome to church graphic. That is, I don't know if I really like looking at that 
graphic. You know, you have the mother sheep standing over her now dead lamb, um, bleeding into the frigid air. You can see, you know, just this despair look, uh, like anthropomorphic on, on her face. You can see kind of down where outside of the lamb's nose, there's blood stain on the snow and the absurdity of blood on a white snow. Um, there's the tracks of the flock that seems to have all moved on. They've, they've all left, and she's left alone in this state as this murder of crows. That's the plural for a bunch of crows together. This murder of crows comes in, and you can feel just the loom and the inevitability of knowing that there's no other way this story ends than the mom leaving her dead son and the crows closing it. Do you feel it, right? There's, there's some emotion behind this piece of artwork. I don't, maybe I'm weird, but I think there's something there. But as you start doing historical research, you find there's more and more and more to this painting and to this artwork. This was painted in, in the 1800s, late 1800s, but if you go and do some historical research, about 200 years before this painting came into existence, there was a really popular art form that was known as a pieta. Uh, it's an Italian word, I'm pretty sure, uh, that was prevalent, and it was a common painting or picture of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, holding the crucified, deceased body of her son. The pinnacle of that is Michelangelo's marble statue named after it in 1499, so you've probably at least seen pictures of that statue before this moment. And when you start piecing it together, it becomes pretty obvious uh, that Schenck is copying this art style, but instead of putting Mary and Jesus, he's anthropomorphizing. Is that the word anthropomorphizing? It's a big word. I can't say it, but you understand what I mean. He's, he's using animals to convey this human reality. And if that's the case, conveying the death of the sacrificial lamb, this whole thing begins to explode with more implications. So let's go back to just the main picture of that. If this is something that, that's to implicate the comments of emotion post-cross and pre-resurrection, the absurdity of the blood-stained white snow, the despair of a mother who was promised that her son would be the savior of Israel, now crucified and murdered, the dark forces looming in and surrounding and leaving us then to wonder how hope could ever spark from a story like this. How could any hope come out of this when there's not a semblance of hope in this image. And here's my point in saying all of this. I think much like this painting, much like a musical performance, the Bible, particularly in our case today, Matthew, is literary artwork. Albeit ancient literary artwork, and again, that's not to deprive Matthews from histor historical accuracy. I fully believe the integrity of this gospel stands for itself, but it is to say Matthew is doing something much more than trying to entertain you. There's something deeper at play with this book that Matthew has written, this biography. So, uh, like I think you can enjoy a symphony or emotionally connect with, with a painting through a surface level observation, there, there's something deeper at play and more profound lying underneath the surface of this ancient biography. But, but Matthew isn't just going to give it to you. You're going to have to work for it, think about it, meditate on it, study it, talk about it with other people. There's going to be this ongoing discourse that's going to drive you deeper and deeper to see what Matthew is doing. I know, Philip, like, you usually start with like a funny story, and you start with this. I told you, college lecture, I'm so sorry. But, but I think there's something at play that I really want to convey to you here. 
By the way, we've already talked about some of this stuff in Matthew's gospel at length, uh, because in Matthew chapter 1, which was last December, so like two of you remember even that, because I barely remember that, but in last December, the opening sermon that we did out of the gospel of Matthew was to look at the genealogy Matthew gives, and to say, Matthew's not just arbitrarily selecting names, but he's actually communicating something through a genealogy. You just got to dive in to look at it, there's all of these intentional points. The women that Matthew includes intentionally, there's some slight name edits from uh, Asa to the name Asaph, from Amon to the name Amos. That's, that's really interesting. Why does Matthew do that? There's an intentional miscount in names, leaving room in the final category for a blank name between Jesus and Joseph, begging the question, well, if Joseph isn't the actual father of Jesus, then who is? And you actually got to get the legwork to pick up on all of that. We don't have, if you're interested, you can go back and find the podcast on our website. But we, we talked through all of that stuff. Then later on in chapter one, the angel tells Joseph that he's going to name the baby Jesus because he will save Israel from their sins. That's what the name Yeshua means in Hebrew. Yahweh saves, God saves, which then begs the question, okay, well, who is it that saves? Is it God or is it Jesus that saves? Yes, that's the answer. And then right after that, Matthew's going to quote from Isaiah, and instead of Jesus, he's going to say his name's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us, which then begs the question, is it Jesus or God that's with us? Yes. Do you see what Matthew is doing? And we've been doing this all, all throughout, from the calming of the storm to forgiving of sins outside the temple. Matthew has made the claim that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, God incarnated into human flesh, promised to save humanity. But He's not going to write it like a theological textbook. That's not what he's telling you. He, he's giving you a claim and a story, and he's inviting you in to consider the evidence. So, what do we do with that? Well, let's at least start here. Jump back to chapter 4. And let me read just one quick verse in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 23, it says this. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, and then hone in on this phrase, Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, and that good news is euangelion in Greek, which is just the gospel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Hold on to that phrase, and then go back to chapter 9 with me where we closed out today in verse 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, now hold on to this part, teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every sickness. Did Matthew just forget that he'd already given this statement? Is Matthew just redundantly repeating himself because he's forgotten what he's written down? No, of course not. Matthew's being very intentional by paralleling these two texts because he's blocking off. Remember, when Matthew writes, he doesn't put chapter titles, he doesn't put verse numbers. He is writing an ancient biography. In an ancient biography, there was an, an artistic practice called bracketing, where you would use phrases to bracket things off and, and to clarify a particular point of the text. So Matthew has now bracketed off from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 9, and what types of things, here we have a graphic to show you of that, what types of things do you think you'll see in between chapter 4 and chapter 9? Teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing. Think we might find those things? I don't know. What's chapters 5, 6, and 7 all about in the gospel of Matthew? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It is teaching, right? It's everything Jesus taught. Right here, compact into one unique story. The other gospel writers will spread them out over time. Matthew compacts it all in, five, six, seven, what Jesus taught. Then what is chapters eight and nine going to be about? 
stories of Jesus healing. This is what we've been talking about for the past two months. So we've really been kind of breaking this down, uh, and, and I've used in the back of your bulletins, you'll notice on the notes some pictures and stuff to kind of help you convey this idea. I've stolen those from the Bible Project. Again, just give credit where credit's due. But, but nine particular stories that we've talked about, and we've talked about the first six, and we're going to really just kind of overview the last three today. So we have the leper, we have the centurion, I'm, I'm going to put this up here for you so you can kind of visualize it better because my handwriting is not going to communicate to you at all. We have Peter's mother-in-law, the sick mother-in-law. Down here we have calming the storm. We have the two demon-possessed men. Then over here we have the paralytic. Then we get to the final three stories. This one is told in two parts. It's told of a dead girl and a diseased woman. And again, I'm not writing this on this so that you can understand it because my handwriting is not good enough for you to understand it. We have two blind men. And then we have this final story down here of another demon-possessed mute man. What's going on here? This is what I want us to explore today as we observe and analyze and think through what is Jesus doing because I think there's so much here that we can talk about, so many highlights, so many things to focus up on. But all I really want to do is take a 30,000-foot overview from the top and to look at how in these final three stories, Jesus is concluding and recapitulating, or Matthew, I guess, is concluding and recapitulating the first six stories, inviting you into this consideration. So I want to do this in two ways. One, I just want to look at the thematic overlays of these nine stories, particularly from these last three up and what that looks like. And then I just want to do a really rapid-fire textual overlay and look at that. How you feeling? I told you, college lecture today. I'm so sorry, but that's what we're doing. Just, we're going to do it. Let's talk thematic. Three themes that, that I think are worth picking up here. Number one, the theme of Jesus' heart for the outcast, even in the midst of, uh, even for the sake of his own reputation, in the midst of ceremonially unclean people. Uh, Theme two, Jesus holding all authority as the very embodiment of God. And then three, the existence of the crowds within these stories and the crowd's interaction with Jesus. So let's, let's talk about this. We can get into this idea of the unclean outcast because when we read the first story, it opens us up to the idea of a leper. We talked about this at length in this sermon, that lepers were unclean people. To touch a leper is to make you unclean. But what does Jesus not hesitate to do? to reach down and touch this leper, healing him. Well, these two stories down here are the exact same case, that there's something about a dead girl and a diseased woman that is unclean just like the leper. And in all three of these stories, Jesus is making some sort of connection. In fact, these are the trifecta of the Jewish ways people become ceremonially unclean. Now, there were ways to become unclean that was not just ceremonially unclean, but was sinfully unclean. So eating uh, wrong foods that wasn't kosher, that's sinfully unclean. But there were other things that you could do. They weren't sinful, but they didn't make you unclean, and they started this process of having to become clean again. The main three ways that that happened was touching a uh, sick person, someone that had a skin disease. It was touching bodily fluids, uh, particularly with a woman bleeding the feminine part of that and just having them even touch you would render you unclean or touching a dead body. Those are the trifecta ways by which an Israelite would be made unclean and would then have to go about the sanctification rituals to become clean again. Matthew has now documented all three of these realities. 
and none of them threaten Jesus' holiness. Rather, in all three stories, it's Jesus' holiness that actually invades into these unclean situations and then radically transforms them to make them clean. The, the, The man is healed from his leprosy. The woman is healed from the bleeding. The dead girl rises again. Why does the presence and touch of Jesus totally flip the Jewish ceremonial codes upside down? Well, because God has promised a Messiah, and Matthew has claimed Jesus is that Messiah, come as the author and perfecter of these codes, come to save Israel. You tracking here? Theme two, the authority and person of Jesus Right here in this story of the storm, we see Jesus calm the storm, and the disciples are astonished because that's something only Yahweh can do. And so they respond with this question, what kind of man is this? And then Matthew moves us into the next story where these two demon-possessed men, the demons within these men, and it's plural demons, speak towards Jesus, and they call Jesus something. Do you remember what they call Jesus? They say, Jesus, Son of God, right? So the disciples don't know the demons do, that Jesus is son of God. And then we jump to the next story, and when Jesus is talking about himself and and this paralytic man, and they're questioning his authority to forgive sins, Jesus says, don't you know the son of man has been given authority? It's a clear reference in this case to Daniel chapter 7. I have the verse just so that you can reflect on that, because it's a prophecy in Daniel 7 where Daniel says, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So the demons recognize Jesus as son of God. Jesus, of course, recognizes himself as the come Messiah, son of man. And then we get to this story of two blind men. And in the story of two blind men, they cry out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Are you seeing some themes pick up here? That in between these three stories, we see a commentary on Jesus' identity. Son of God, son of man, son of David. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of Matthew at this point, you've heard that phrase, Son of David, one time before this. Do you know where it is, Bible trivia? First sentence of the book. Matthew is going to say, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. But no one in this story has recognized who Jesus is up until this point. Now, do you see what Matthew is doing here? The disciples who live and walk with Jesus, they don't recognize who he is, but the demons do, and the paralytics do, and the first people that actually see Jesus for his true identity are blind. Do you see what Matthew's doing? Matthew's a literary genius. Because what Matthew is communicating is there's actually something you have to give up about yourself before you can recognize who Jesus is. There's something that you have to get away of, all these categories for thinking about the world, to give that over to Jesus. So what is this word son of David referencing? Well, that's a clear reference to 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to King David that he's going to bring one from his lineage to reign on his throne forever and ever. So it's another messianic promise for who this Jesus is. So Matthew has now claimed Jesus is the authoritative son of God, the come son of man, the promised son of David, and who realizes this? Well, demons, Jesus and blind people. 
but it's the people with Jesus that don't. And Matthew's saying, you've got to do something to get out of the way you think about this world and totally submit it to the person of who Jesus is. You have to lay aside your assumptions and surrender it to Jesus. And then we get this theme of crowds. So in story one, after Peter's mother-in-law, at the end of that, it says in 8.16, when evening came, they had brought many to him who were demon-possessed, and he drove out spirits with a word, and he healed all the, all the sick. Then in verse 18, it says, and when Jesus saw the large crowds around him, he had gave the order to go back to the other side. So crowds begin together here. And we jump down to the final story of the paralytic. And when that one ends, we see when the crowd saw this, many of them were amazed and awestruck, and they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Again, the, the crowds appear in this story, but there's a little phrase right before this because the Pharisees think to themselves, it's blasphemy for this man to forgive sins. He can't do that. You see the theme that Matthew's picking up on. And then we get to the end of the story today in chapter 9 when the demon-possessed man, verse 33, had been driven out. The man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, but the Pharisees said he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. And if you want to pick up on where this story goes, Matthew then carries it onward to chapter 12, where he's going to tell you a far more detailed, where Jesus heals a demon-possessed blind and mute man, and here the Pharisees give the full-fledged accusation. College lecture, how you, how you holding up? You see what Matthew's doing here. Now hold, hold on to this theme of the crowds because we'll come back to it. But let me do one more thing here. And this is going to be rapid fire. I'm going to do this as quickly as I possibly can. Again, all in an attempt to overwhelm you, but I just want to see you, the textual overlaps between these stories and the stories before them. So take a big, deep breath. We're going in. I have a chart for you to follow up here. I'm going to talk right here. We're going to draw some lines. Chapter 9, verse 18. As we start out, it says, and suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him. If you jump back to this story in chapter 8, verse 2, what does the leper do to Jesus? He comes and bows before him. It's the exact same Greek phrase that he uses there. Now we have a story in this one where a key leader who has access to all of the things that could help him has, has a small child in need, and he cannot help the small child. So this leader runs to Jesus in chapter 9.22, he says, lay your hands on my daughter and she will live. The centurion says, hey, come and just say the word and my servant will be healed. Do you see overlaps in those two stories? And the story of the, the diseased woman and the paralytic man, when the woman touches him and, and Jesus uh, notices this, the words to her, what does he say? Take courage, my daughter. Your faith has saved you. But what does he say to the paralytic when the paralytic lands before him on this mat? Have courage, son. Your faith, your sins are forgiven. Do, do you see these ties of these stories here? If you look at the very end of this, it just says that the news spread about Jesus throughout, which is going to be how the very next story ends. And there's more that we could get in. Uh, at the end of this story, or in this story, he tells the two blind men, let it be done to you according to your faith. In this story up here with the centurion again, Jesus says, as it has been done in your faith, let it be done according to that faith. And, and then he says, hey, be sure that no one finds out, which is the exact same thing he says to the leper up in that story. And then, of course, we get the clear demon-possessed men to the demon or demon-possessed man to the demon-possessed men. Um, we, we see that this man was brought before him, much like this paralyzed man was brought before him. Do you see what Matthew is doing? These are not arbitrary stories that Matthew has come up with to entertain you on a whim. 
Now, there's so much more that we could talk about here. We could talk about the role of faith in each one of these stories and the complexity that there's actually one of these stories where faith isn't present. There's faith, faith, and Jesus. But in this story, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, where is your faith? You have little faith. You don't, you don't believe in me or trust in me, but he still saves them. So he would say down here, well, look, it's, it's going to be done to you according to your faith. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. Well, they don't have enough faith, and Jesus still saves and heals them. What's, what's going on there? There's so much. Uh, how none of this is formulaic. There's times where Jesus touches somebody. There's times where he does it from a distance. Someone runs up and they bow before him. Sometimes people touch him. Sometimes he includes faith. Sometimes he doesn't. There's different occurrences of the crowds being awestruck or amazed at what's going on. The progressive skepticism of the Pharisees. All of this is at play in this. And before we talk about what all of this means... I just want you to see, Matthew has not arbitrarily thrown in random stories that he just thinks are kind of neat and will fill up space on his paper. He's not a college student reaching a page limit here. These are, there are countless other stories Matthew could have used. In fact, when John closes out his gospel, John says, man, there are so many things that Jesus did. If every one of them were to be written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written about it. No, Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, has knit together this tapestry with careful intention in the artistic endeavor to capture both the glory and the beauty of the Savior he personally followed, and then he wants to invite you to follow that same Savior. So, so zoom back out to that bracket that we talked about from chapter 4 to chapter 9. What has Jesus been doing? He's been teaching, Sermon on the Mount. He's been healing these nine stories. Where's proclaiming the gospel in these, in this? Do you see? What's the implication? That actually both of these sections are proclaiming the gospel. It is not one or the other. It is not neither. It is both of these proclaiming the gospel. Now, you can go and comb through chapter 5 all the way through chapter 9, and you'll never find the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's a great part of the gospel. It's a real part of the gospel. You go to heaven when you die. But Matthew sees something far more intentional in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because how is Jesus proclaiming the gospel? Well, for Matthew and for all of the New Testament writers, for that matter, the gospel of Israel's Messiah King Jesus is far, far more than go to heaven when you die. It's about the experience Experiencing the restoration of abundant life that the king has prepared for you now and then living that on a trajectory into eternity so that, yes, you do go to heaven when you die, but you experience heaven right now. That these people actually experienced heaven on earth through Jesus. That's proclaiming the gospel. That when you live in obedience to Jesus' teaching, you actually experience heaven on earth through Jesus. It's not just go to heaven when you die. It's experience it here and now. And yes, we still battle sin. And yes, we still have this conversation and this conflict within us and with other people. And there's a day coming where God will rid that once and for all. And we all look forward to that day. But it doesn't mean you can't taste it now. That's what Jesus has come for. Because here's the thing. The word gospel, it's not a religious term. I mean, for us today, it's a religious term. When have you ever used the word gospel outside of church? But if you were to go back to Matthew's time, it's not a religious word, it's a political word. 
Not used by the Bible writers, but used by Rome. So, here's a quote from you. This is taken from a stone inscription written in 9 BC uh, about Caesar. It's a, it's a happy birthday card to Caesar Augustus written in stone, because that's what you did when you were the Caesar and could have birthday cards written to you in stone. It reads like this. The birth of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel. It's the word, euangelion, the same word Matthew uses, the gospel concerning him. The most divine Caesar, equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Providence has brought our life to our, in our life the climax of perfection and giving us Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and set all things in order. Do you see what the gospel writers are doing? These aren't just men that are just wanting to write stories down. They're starting a movement in the name of their Savior who redeemed them. So the New Testament authors, they reclaim this word in rebellion against Rome, suggesting, hey, it's not Augustus that brings an end to war and a renewal and dispels chaos. No, 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 it's a lowly peasant from Nazareth. And I get that that claim sounds ridiculous, but here's stories that tell you otherwise. This is what Matthew is doing. Here's the situations where when people encounter the person and the power of Jesus, they can't help but be radically transformed. And this man, this, this Jewish peasant, he didn't dispel evil and chaos through militant power or conquering war strategies. No, he dispelled evil actually by subjecting himself to evil. By subjecting himself to the evil destruction of humanity, going around and absorbing pain and hurt of humanity into himself. Lepers and centurions. Demon-possessed and bedridden paralytics. Diseased women and blind people and even a dead girl. And all of this pointed to a direction of absurdity. A direction that the Pharisees, they couldn't believe because it didn't make sense to them. It seemed so anti what their presumptions were. No, this can't be what the Messiah would be like. He's a military conqueror. And the crowds, they're amazed by it, but they still can't make sense of it. So they're awestruck. They're, they're something great, but they don't understand what's happening. But who understands what's happening in these stories? Who, who understands Jesus? The person who has been radically transformed. That's who understands Jesus. And so for them, as, abs as absurd as it seemed, they knew it would come to the point where it actually looked something like this. Where that's what Jesus did. And that's absurd. They recognize that it's absurd. It's hopeless. They recognize that it's hopeless. His blood spilt on the backdrop of his purity to the point that desperate hopelessness, like the world has ever known, more than the world has ever known, begins to push in. And they say, we can go there because we know that's not how the story ends. This is what Matthew's doing. Because it's the experience of all these people. They've experienced this feeling. And I would say that you've probably experienced this feeling. And the invitation is not to stand back in the crowd and watch. 
It's not to be like a Pharisee and be skeptical, but it's to take this feeling directly to Jesus, the very embodiment of it, and say, Jesus, I can't make sense of this anguish, but you've redeemed far more than what I could ever imagine. I give it to you. That's every one of these stories. That's the invitation. Jesus heals anguish. Last summer, many of you know that Haley and I went through the hardest time in our life. I, I don't, uh, and I don't say that just, but sincerely, the, the hardest time in our life. Um, we, we were undergoing embryo adoption, and, and we were finally hopeful you guys had come alongside us and helped us out in so many ways, uh, just trip after trip to Dallas, getting ready. Uh, and finally, we had gotten to the point of doing our first embryo uh, tran transaction, transition, I don't know, whatever, when they put it in Haley, I guess. There's probably a better way to say that. Um, and so we came back. She got the positive pregnancy test. We were excited. I flew off to California for the uh, SBC annual meeting. And while I was in the crowd of people in the annual meeting, I got the call. We, we lost both. And, and I remember in a crowd of people, this, this is the emotion. I, I don't know how else to describe it. And we come back, and, and finally I fly home, and I get home to Haley. I, I land at like midnight. I drive all the way from Albuquerque back, and I just get in bed, and I hold her as we experience this emotion together. And we think, I don't know where the hope comes from here, but I know a Savior that's been resurrected that tells me otherwise, so we march forward. I preached a really hard sermon a couple Sundays after that, and we geared up to try again. Went through the whole process over and over. We finally got back to Dallas, got ready to do the embryo transition all over again, only to be called to our doctor's office and say, hey, the two embryos we thought you had, they, they weren't frozen properly. We can't do anything. Go home. And it's just right here, all over again. Wondering, what are we doing, God? I don't understand how you can make sense of this. And it didn't. And in my mind, it still doesn't make sense. But I have a God that can take this image, put a spark of hope in it, and turn it into the little baby boy I get to hold now. Because that's what our God does. That's what these stories are. Matthew's not writing to entertain you. He's inviting you in. Because he's saying, hey, you can actually put your story here. Now, that's not to say that God's going to 100% heal you of the ailment that you have. He may, he may not. That's not to say, every, we, we all know how this life ends until Jesus comes back. We're going to deal with that. That's the reality of these crows surrounding. But we know that lamb does not lay in that snow. But he stands up victorious. And it's that invitation to us that we live as if the lamb is victorious, even in the anguish we face. Live as if the lamb is victorious. So how do you experience this final point, and we'll close out. Who is this for? What type of person gets to know this? And I would just say this. If we're going to stay with the theme we've been doing, it just means this. Intentionally living like Jesus means entrusting yourself to him. That's it. You see, you, you can't live like the crowds or the Pharisees. You'll, you'll never experience this. But it's the actual action of coming in front of Jesus, kneeling down and saying, I can't fix it, Jesus. I need you. That's where transformation happens. So maybe you're feeling that anguish and you're saying, Philip, I just need that. I don't know what else to tell you other than just come lay yourself before Jesus and say, Jesus, I have to give it to you because I can't fix it. Now, if you want to just sit in the back and observe, that's okay. Jesus will let you do it. He's not going to force you into this. 
he is inviting you. Would you come and trust yourself to him? And I would say that's something you should do for the first time in receiving the salvation and being forgiven of your sins, and that's a once-and-done reality. But it's something I found myself in, in life having to come back to and do over and over again. So maybe it's not for the first time for you, but it's, again, coming back and saying, God, we lay this before you. But what does it mean to entrust yourself to the Savior? Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your love. And God, we come to you in amazement of what you've given us in, in this word, this Bible. That it's not just some primitive old book, but it's artistically and thoughtfully written for us. That we could see it and give glory to you. Thank you for Matthew's brilliance in writing this. But God, let this claim not just be an observation or an entertainment, but an actual transformation in our lives. That we would come to you and trust that you put yourself through more anguish than we could ever imagine to rescue us from the sins that just bind us over and over. Let us experience that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be up here to pray if you want to pray. If you want to pray from your seats, you can do that. This is your chance to respond. Let's stand.